Hey listeners, I'm Pastor Brian Dwyer, and you're listening to the Pursue God Truth Podcast on a Tuesday. Pastor Ross Anderson joins me for today's topic. And remember, you can find resources to have this conversation with your family, small group, or mentor. Find it all at PursueGod.org. Okay, Ross, today we wrap up our series on eschatology, which is the study of the end times according to the Bible. And so we've talked about what that means and what the rapture is and what the tribulation is and who the Antichrist is. And we don't know who he is, by the way, and what the millennium's all about. And we've, looking, we've been looking at all these different options, but most of this, Ross, has been really focused a little bit more on heaven and Jesus and eternity as a, from the vantage point of a Christian. But today we're I think it's important for us to, you know, to finish up this little mini series on eschatology by talking about hell because we really haven't we haven't talked a whole lot about hell. It's interesting that most people, especially unchurched people, believe in heaven, but but most unchurched people don't believe in hell. And so really the the question we're going to answer today is is hell a real place? And let me just cut to the chase and say yes. Hell's a real place. Jesus talked about hell more than a lot of things. Not just the Bible talks about it, but even Jesus talked about it. Even in the red letters, we have a lot a lot of stuff about hell. So yes, hell is a real place. So now that we've got the question answered, what we're really going to do today is we're going to take a look at a few different views on what that actually means. What is hell really like then if hell is a real place according to the Bible, if even Jesus talked about it? Now we're going to be using, we're going to be kind of summarizing some of the views, some of the points in this book called Four Views on Hell. We'll put a link to it below, but Ross, we're actually not even going to do four. We're just going to do three because the fourth view that they had was purgatory and it's not, it wasn't even really about hell, was it? Right. So really the book deserved to be called Three Views on Hell. And and uh, and footnote, right? So yeah, but when with talk, footnotes. Yeah, with footnotes. With oh, by the way, here's a you know this a it's 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 related to what happens after we die, but it's not really a picture of what happens. You know, to it's not a really a picture of what happens to lost people, um, to people apart from Jesus. So um, anyway, without getting into that, what we're really talking about in our series on eschatology, we've been dealing so far with what theologians would call. General eschatology, and that is what happens to everything, to the world we live in, to the hi- timeline of history, and so forth. But today we're shifting to talk about personal eschatology, as as the scholars call it, and as what happens to the individual. And and so we saw, you know, when we talked about Jesus coming back, and we saw the judgment that those two things will converge when it comes to the when the judgment day of judgment comes, what happens to people, to individual people, in the future of all things affects me personally because it affects my future. And so this is where hell falls into the, the category of eschatology. Okay, let me let me warm us up, Ross, with just some scripture verses. I mentioned that Jesus talked about hell a lot. Let me get, let me prove it. Okay, I'm gonna read just some scripture verses for our listeners to kind of get us warmed warmed up. Okay. Oh boy. Matthew, yeah, warmed yeah. up literally like you talk about some flames here. <laughs> well hopefully we're not going to get that warm. Here we go. Matthew 25 41. Then he will say to those on his left, the sheep and the goats, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That was Matthew 25. Mark 9 44. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. And then he says some more things about hell in Mark chapter 9. 
Or how about, let's see, Luke chapter, I'm just going to try to capture most. We did Matthew, we did Mark, how about Luke? Luke chapter 16, verse 23. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. So here's a parable of a guy who is in Hades and we can go on, but, but I think people get the point. The Bible talks a lot about hell. Jesus in particular did. A couple more. Now this is from Paul, 2 Thessalonians 1, 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Okay, so Paul talks about it. And then how about Revelation 14? We spent a lot of time in Revelation in this series. Verses 10 and 11. He, will, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. So, Ross, it's verses like this that I think modern Christians have a hard time with because, because they're saying, wait a second, I thought that God is a loving God. I, I'm having a hard time squaring up that God's a loving God with this idea that there's this eternal punishment awaiting people who haven't, who haven't accepted him, who haven't tried, maybe they were born into the wrong family. This is maybe how an agnostic might say it. So they're born into a wrong family. So they're, the punishment is eternal torment. Like that, it's, it seems like the punishment doesn't fit the crime there. Well, this actually, that, that's a great setup, Brian, to lead us actually into the first of the, of the views that are represented in this particular book. And by the way, in the book, all the views of hell, everyone in the, all of the others believe in hell. They just would disagree about the nature of it or what, what, what it really looks like to experience uh, hell, a different vision of hell. So, but the first one called eternal conscious torment, this is the one that historically Christians have, have always believed. It's the traditional view held for centuries that hell is a place of God's punishment for sin where people experience conscious torment and it lasts for eternity. But the author of, of this uh, particular chapter, he makes the point that says, we, today we minimize two things. We minimize the holiness of God, the glory of God, and as because of that, then we minimize the gravity of sin. And he says, when we minimize those two things, then, it, then the natural result of that will be we'll minimize um, the nature of hell. So in other words, he would say, Ross, well, hold on a second. The punishment does match the crime. If you understood the glory of God, the perfection of God, the holiness of God, the worthiness of God of our worship and obedience, and if you understood the depravity of man and, the, and how absolutely offensive to the, that holy, worshipable, worshipable God, then, then I don't think you would say the punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime. Is that what he would maybe argue? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What he, that, that's a good picture of what he's trying to say, is that it, it's called the, you know, the value of the person against whom the offense is taken gra- uh, adds to the gravity of the offense. And so they say the value of God, the glory of God is infinite. And so an offense against him, against his law, against his character, what would also then be, um, you know, way beyond what we would expect it to be or, or what we would think justice would require. And he turns it around, too, and flips, flips it. He says, if, if God's, not only if God's holiness is so infinite compared to ours, 
But if God's goodness is so infinite compared to ours, then it follows that when we um, violate the goodness of God, the, the, the kindness and the mercy of God, that, that there's a, a place for what he would call an, an infinite punishment, an infinite result um, of that transgression. Okay, so this is the, as you mentioned, this is the sort of the historic belief. This is really what the church has believed for almost 2,000 years. I mean, really for a long, long, long time, only in modern, I think in modern thought, do do individual human beings have the gall to push back on this? You know, maybe that's as for another conversation, but maybe that's, you know, that that we we have a different sense of individuals' rights nowadays. And so I think for probably the majority of human of humanity, certainly of Christian history, that really wasn't the case. So you see it in the Bible and you take the most plain reading, right? This is the most plain reading of scripture, and it scares you. It scares the, well, the hell out of you, right? Can we even say that? I think literally for many people, they're like, okay. In fact, back in the day, this is hellfire and brimstone preaching, right? This People would be preaching this. I mean, uh, Jonathan Edwards, right? He certainly believed in, what is this called? Eternal conscious torment, right? His most famous sermon, I remember reading it in school, was sinners in the hands of an angry God, and he's, you know, you're dangling over this precipice. And, like a spider over the fire, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so, and a lot of people came to faith. A lot of, I remember my church growing up, Ross, we we did this, this, I don't know if it was a play, I guess. It was a play called Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames. It was really popular 30 years ago, maybe. It, it went around to a lot of churches, and, uh, and my church did it. And I remember, Ross, being an altar counselor for that play and and afterward i mean hundreds maybe even more than maybe thousands of people came forward to give their life to jesus because of the depiction of hell in heaven's gates hell's flames and they were just like i i'm i want to i remember praying with this this group of young men and and i said why'd you come back cuz we they said cuz we don't want to go to hell and i said that's it that's why you came back. So let's make sure at the end to talk about really the real motivator for following Jesus, because I, I, all this is important. I think it's important to have this conversation for people to understand this. But I think it's also important that to know that 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 this isn't this shouldn't really be the I don't know maybe is this too much for me to say this shouldn't be the prime motivator for someone to to want to get right with God. No, and it's not in the Bible. The Bible's honest about it for sure. Uh, but but there's other factors that come into play that all need to be ca- taken into account. But but it, you know the escape the flames is not the reason that we run to the cross. It's the mercy of God. We'll talk about that later. But I think I think Brian, you have a great uh, perspective here on this when you say that there's so many people in our culture today just don't even believe in hell. And and on, honestly, there's a lot of um, quote Christian speakers. There's a lot of popular. Um, personalities in the religious world who who claim a mantle of Christianity in some way, who really are um, undermining the whole idea of hell and eternal punishment and so forth, and, and would you know they wouldn't be included in this book. And that so our our listeners need to really understand what the Bible's talking about here, so that we don't just. I think all of our um, the writers of this book will make the point that. 
we need to make sure that our view of hell is based on what Scripture says and not just based on um, our emotion, our sentimentality, or just on tradition. Um, but but there's a sense in which you know we we just have to separate our our emotionality about this about the people that you know are real people that would suffer from this because that's not how we understand what's true it's not just what we like or what we are comfortable with okay so are there any legitimate critiques of this historic kind of traditional view of hell like are, is there a is there a is there ground before we even go to the next point here is there ground to stand on for someone who is going to push back on what christians have you know, believed in really for almost two thousand years. Yeah, so um, there is some ground, and it and it's from people who have a different vision of what hell might be like. Um, there, there's some ground because th- this particular first view is based on it's based on uh, several biblical texts, including ones that you read, and and out of the come three characteristics. That one is that okay, um, se- humans are separated from God. Number two. That there's um, that it's that it's a just retribution for sin. Number three, that it's eternal. Now the pushback on on it is that oh wait a second maybe you're reading too much into into those verses to get all three of those things out of every single one of them. Maybe maybe there's some uh, better ways to look at some of the verses, some at least some aspects of the verses that would uh, change maybe how we look at the nature. Of, of God's uh, punishment um, or, or what hell is like. Um, but, you know, uh, in this, in this one, th- th- those are, they're not huge differences. They're differences maybe in emphasis or in some details or whatever, but all the authors seem to have a pretty good idea that hell is a real thing. Well, yeah, and I like what you said, Ross. It's not like even, even just those pushbacks are still from a biblical perspective. They're not throwing the Bible out they're saying, no, I, I read the same Bible, I believe in the same Bible, I have a high view of the same Bible, but, but maybe, maybe you're reading a little too much into, these, into these, some of these concepts. That is so different than someone, like you said, someone saying, I don't like how that feels. <laughs> that doesn't feel good to me. I don't like how that makes me think about God. God seems like mean and grumpy when I think about that. That's, those are two completely different perspectives. So again, to our listeners, if you're a follower of Jesus, my hope is that you really want to know what the Bible says. We can't make up our own ideas here. We really want to be faithful to what God's Word says. We let God's Word take the lead in this. So keep listening if you want to, if you want to hear another possible perspective on this. But you should put it through the same grid that we're trying to put it through, which is I want to just be faithful to the Word of God. Honestly, Ross, if, if there's another option if there's another biblical option than eternal conscious torment, I want to hear it because I I would love I would love to be able to biblically defend another option. I mean, I'm just being honest right here. I would love to. And so this next one is maybe a candidate. It's called terminal punishment, or it's also known as annihilationism. Explain that. Yeah, the idea terminal punishment. The idea is that the difference here is that. Um, from these two views is that this view believes that hell is real, that, that, is, that, is, that there is conscious torment, but that it's not eternal. 
So terminal punishment means the punishment is going to end at some point. And the annihilationism term that's often been used in the past it reveals the idea that what the way that that punishment ends is not that somebody gets off the hook and then they go from hell to heaven, but that they actually cease to exist as, a, as an individual, as a person. Because, uh, so the argument that this author makes is that um, our eternal life, our eternality as, as beings, creatures, is really, it's not intrinsic to ourselves. You know, it's, it's not a function of the fact that we exist, that we're going to exist forever, but it's something that's granted by God. God, God said, okay, you, you can exist. But then if that's true, then God could also t- uh, take that away. That God could also grant us a, a cessation of our existence, so to speak. And so that's a philosophical background for this idea of ter- terminal punishment. And so rather than suffering eternal torment, those who are punished in hell are going to eventually be destroyed. And so the punishments are going to be commensurate to the level of sin, the amount of sin. You know, this, this, is, this speaks to, you know, the sense that we have that, oh, some people's sin is greater than other people's sin. And so maybe it makes sense that uh, different people will, their punishment will last for different amounts of time. I don't know how long, it, you know, the Bible doesn't ever say anything about, if, if it's not eternal, the Bible doesn't say, oh, yours is going to last for 10 minutes, or yours is going to last for, you know, 10,000 years, or whatever, but, it, but the point is that um, it seems to, some people def- seem just that punishment is commensurate to the level of offense uh, against God, so punishments will differ uh, for people based on how sinful they were. And then when the punishment is complete, then they simply cease to exist. Okay, so let's drill down on these two words you mentioned then, Ross, because it's really about how they interpret the word, two words. One is eternal, and the other one is destruction. So what what this author is saying is that traditionally we are very literal and hardcore when we talk about the word eternal, but then when it comes to the word destruction, we, we, we don't always think of that literally. But he's basically saying destruction is literal. So that's kind of the annihilationism. Like there's, you're going to be punished, but that punishment isn't, the, the, act, the act of punishing isn't the thing that's eternal, but the, but, but the results of the action, that's yeah. what's eternal. Yeah, so when, it, when we talk about eternal punishment, it doesn't mean the punishment lasts forever, but the consequence or the result of the punishment certainly lasts forever because this person will never again exist. Now, so for example, when you read from, I think it was, um, I can't remember, first, this first Thessalonians where it talks about judgment, uh, f- fire, and so forth, the word destruction comes into play. So go ahead and read Let that. Let me read that again. Second Thessalonians 1.9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Yeah, so how would someone, an annihilationist, explain this? Yeah, I, the question, I think, how would someone who's not an annihilationist expect, explain this? They will suffer eternal destruction. That's what, okay, so is that metaphorical? Or is it literal? Um, will they be destroyed or not be destroyed? Then the other question is, will it be eternal or will it not be eternal? Um, so those are, so that the annihilationists would say they will be destroyed. 
and the and the result is they're not that their destruction will be eternal because they're not going to start to exist again. So they're saying the the word destruction there is talking about not existing anymore. Annihilation being annihilated. So they will suffer the punishment of annihilation. But again, a, a traditional person would look at this and, and focus on the eternal thing. And maybe we would think of destruction and we would say, no, they're talking about eternal like punishment. But, but an annihilationist would say, no, that if that's not what the word says, it says destruction. Destruction means it doesn't exist anymore. So that's, that's the question of, okay, so that uh, you can see the, div- the, divide or the debate between the two perspectives both of them would say that you know sin gets punished and it gets punished with serious you know consequences but that um, either it's eternal or it has a it has a terminal point okay so how would and he talks also about revelation 20 verses 14 and 15 which is which is about the the lake of fire let me read that and, and explain to me then how an annihilationist would explain this. So Revelation 20, last week we, we spent a lot of time at the front part of this chapter, but now the last part, verses 14 and 15, then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death, and anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. He, he uses the term the second death. Well, what is that what is that death when he talks about when we have a first death our mortal life ends i think that's probably what he's talking about so what's the second death is it literal or is it me- metaphorical so we i think in traditional view we'd say it's metaphorical it means that that um our relationship with god is dead forever we don't have um this eternal life and that's what's been removed and i think the annihilationists would say no death means death it means that they're done, you know, they're physically, but now period. And I think that would be the way they would probably interpret um, a verse like that. So they would be very literal about words like death, destruction, perish, extinction. And they would say, okay, that's all talking about basically be, being no more, existing no more, being annihilated. So would that include, say, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death? How would they look at a verse like that? That would be one of the verses they would really look to and say, you know, at the result of sin, you die. And so historically, I've, I've thought about, oh, the wages of sin means that you're going to die spiritually. So, but you could you could legitimately say, well, no, that's that doesn't mean spiritually because that's sort of like a, a, a metaphorical or an analogical approach. You say, no, it means you're going to die. If you, unless your sins aren't forgiven, then you're, you're going to... Now, we'd say, no, it doesn't mean you're going to die physically because, you know, um, it's not like you're going to sin and then, and then you're going to get hit by a bus um, immediately after. But, but I think then the annihilationists would say that what this is talking about is your, your actual eternal... Um, existence. You s- sin leads to this, and unless sin is forgiven through the cross, then this is going to be the result. Okay, so what do critics say of this perspective? What you know, what do, what do people from the first group that feel really strongly about a more traditional view of hell? What would they say to the annihilationists? Yeah, I think they would say, okay, eternal. Sometimes it's pretty clear that the word eternal means that it's going to be like forever. So sometimes it's not, and it depends on context. 
but they're going to say, oh, let's make sure that we, we, we do the homework on this. They're, they're going to uh, probably argue uh, from, the, from the sense of, again, they're going to come back and say, this takes maybe God's um, glory and God's majesty doesn't take it seriously enough because you can have a way out, so to speak, again. Um, so I think that uh, it's an internal, it's kind of like a intramural debate, though, because the, both, both these parties see, see a lot that they really affirm in each other, um, in, in these other, each other perspective, um, but they would simply probably disagree on the exegesis of certain passages and how those passages ought to be um, un- unfolded and understood. Okay, so we've talked about eternal conscious torment, kind of the traditional view. We've talked about terminal punishment or annihilationism. And those are two, I would say, Ross, those are two worthy options, worth looking into more, worth studying, reading the chapters in the book. There's one more, there's one more option that's covered in the book that, that I would say is maybe just a little bit sketchy, but let's cover it. Because I think it's helpful, I think, for people to hear, you know, hear another option on this that's really trying to be biblical in the approach. But I think this is also related to people who, you know, there's another version of what we're about to talk about here that that really is does not at all ha- hold a high view of the Bible. And so we're we're calling what the book calls ultimate reconciliation, and this is a view of hell that kind of represents a sort of universalism. Why don't you explain that? Right. The idea of ultimate reconciliation means that in the end, everybody will be reconciled to God. And so it, it, it's a sense, it's a Christian sort of universalism. It's not universalism that's rooted in secular pluralism or in the idea that you know all roads lead to God or whatever. But this guy, this author, this particular author and those who believe this way, they're really trying to root the idea in Christian principles and in a biblical theology as best they can. Now, the problem is, or the weakness of this, I guess I will anticipate that right now, but come back to it later, is that it's less rooted in actual texts. It's less rooted in actual biblical exegesis, and it's more rooted in in some philosophical approaches and maybe some broad meta-narratives of Scripture um, and so it, it doesn't have, I think I agree with you, Brian, that it doesn't really have maybe as much credibility. But, you know, the fact that it was included in this book and it was not included in the previous version of this book shows that maybe it's gaining popularity um, or many, you know, there's more people who are following. I could see this one gaining popularity, honestly, because, but here's, here's what this one feels like to me, Ross. And again, I'll let you explain this a little bit more, but it feels like, someone is trying to approach scripture with an idea that they're trying to prove. So it's, it feels like proof texting, right? When preachers do this, it's like, I want to preach on this thing. So let me see if I can cobble together some verses that might support what I'm really trying to get at here. It's not, again, I don't mean to be judgmental, but it doesn't feel like this really flows out of scripture necessarily. And it's just like obviously flowing out of scripture. It feels like a little bit creative, <laughs> a little bit of calisthenics here, but let's give it its due. So explain. So, so, well, let me try to, let me, let me see if I can understand. So there, so universalism, like, like the, the really bad kind of universalism is says all roads lead to heaven, believe what you want, 
we're all, you're all going to go to heaven anyway. That's not that's not exactly what they're saying. But in essence, it's kind of like universalism because at the end of the day, everyone this these, this guy believes everyone is going to end up in heaven. Is that right? Do I have that right? Yeah, no, that's right. That's correct. Now, the the difference between his view and the universal, you know, the typical universalism view, there's a couple of differences. One is that he believes that people will actually suffer hell. But hell will not be final, terminal, um, whatever. His view is that people will suffer hell until they get it. You know, they'll suffer punishment for their sins until they figure out they need to repent, and then they'll go to heaven forever. And so who knows how long hell will be or what it will be like and so forth. But he says it's a real thing. And then the other thing about that sets this maybe different from a, a non-Christian um, universalism view is that he really is trying to root it in the work of Christ, in the blood of Christ on the cross. And his argument is that the blood of Christ and the cross, the death of Christ is so powerful that it's able to overcome and reverse human unbelief. And so, you know, yeah, he's he he's he's trying to make it uh, rooted in scripture, but really it's more based on um sort of this the broader arc of theology, maybe some some basic um presuppositions or some deductions rather than on looking at the the text of scripture and what it actually says. Now, he does refer to a couple of biblical texts, but um you know, he doesn't really go into depth on trying to understand them in their context and understand other verses that relate. But here's one of them, Romans 5.18. This is a good example. Just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act, talking about Jesus, resulted in justification and life for all people. So they would take that and say, there it is. That's the, that's the kind of meta narrative, which is, it's very true. I mean, it's, it's true as far as it goes. Obviously, that more traditional Christians wouldn't say that that means everyone's going to be saved and going to be with Jesus. But, but they would say, "See, look, when it says all people, so there's going to be somehow everyone's going to end up justified with life." And so, this is a verse that they would use. It probably no one else would even use this verse to talk about hell, but they would use this right. verse to talk about. And hell. they they would argue, see that uh, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation or hell for all people, then the all people is used in both phrases, and they would go, why wouldn't you use that that phrase in equivalent way? Everybody is con- condemned, then it says, why not through the work of Christ isn't everybody then saved? So that's that's the way the, the thinking goes on this one. Yeah, another another passage is 2 Peter 3, 9, that the, the scripture that says that God doesn't want any to perish. Another one is John one twenty nine that Jesus takes away the sins of the world. So again, they're saying, okay, look. So here's how we square that up with our vision of hell. Uh, you know, hell hell is real. Hell exists. Hell punishment. I mean, all those verses we read about punishment, they they still say, yeah, that all happens. But at the end of the day, ultimately, everyone gets reconciled to Jesus. So what they're saying is that that somehow after this punishment, you kind of work off this this stuff that that at some point that you're like, okay, now I get it. Now I want to believe in Jesus. So it's still it's still salvation through Jesus. It's not salvation through all roads lead to heaven. Right. Exactly. It's uh, it's all rooted in Jesus. But the part one of the problems with it is that 
if everybody is going to be ultimately saved, then that that seems the critics have said how that that minimizes the meaningfulness of of human free will, the 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 meaningfulness of human choices. Like I could choose to oppose God in this world, or even sitting in punishment, and and and, and yet ultimately I don't get my I don't get to you know, live out my choice. I, my choice is not meaningful because God. So some some people said that instead of showing the love of God, it it really undermines the love of God because God doesn't love human beings enough to make their choices, uh, to respect the meaningfulness of their choices. So in a way, Ross, this is kind of reminiscent of Mormon theology in a sense, right? Because more, more, and you, you grew up Mormon, so you understand this. We, we talk about this kind of stuff on the Unveiling Mormonism podcast, but, but it, it's got some undertones of that a little bit, right? That there's, according to Mormons, that every, everyone dies, when, when you die, you go to this what do they call it? A, a waiting place or prison? Spirit yeah, prison? they call it uh, the spirit world, spirit prison. And then you have an opportunity, essentially. Now, except maybe maybe you're not being tormented, but you have an opportunity to respond to Jesus. And it, it gets really weird because it talks about people do baptisms for you on earth, and you can receive those those covenants that you didn't get to do when you were when you had a body. Anyway, it gets really weird, but. It feels a little bit like that. It feels like something that I would maybe make up if I was starting a cult. Well, it's it you know it doesn't it takes away the onus of your ultimate rebellion against God. You know, there's no there's no threat at all of saying I, I'm just going to live my own way. I'm going to shake my fist in the face of the being that created me. So ultimately, it you know it says oh everything is happy in the end. Um, but so, it, but it, what it, what that means, I think, is it undermines the holiness of God. So, in contradiction to the first view, which made a big deal out of the holiness of God, it seems like this one would undermine the holiness of God in favor of the mercy. And so, God is merciful. God is holy. Those aren't in opposition to each other, but they both have to be taken seriously. And this one doesn't seem to. So, Ross, there are preachers out there in recent years who started off preaching very biblically and kind of wandered into a little bit more of a love wins, God is a good guy, and really minimizing, minimizing hell. Like, would they, would they, what, if they wrote a chapter in this book, what would they say? Would they basically just, would they be saying basically hell's not, hell's not a real place? Yeah, I think the, I think on the, the larger, picture they'd probably be saying no there really is no such thing as hell or you know you you make your hell on earth by the choices that you make and so you're going to suffer if you make bad choices or if you hurt people or whatever but ultimately uh, because god is so filled with love and mercy that he's not going to make he's not going to punish anybody or he's not going to hurt anybody in the long run that i think it would be just like that no hell approach so what would you say to the christian listener who's saying yeah, I like that. He's a preacher too. He's got a big church. He's got a big following. I'm just going to follow that. Like, is that a legitimate option for a biblically minded follower of Jesus today? Well, no, not not really. If you really are biblically minded, you know. Here's the thing: is in in the Bible, our approach to Scripture is that you know some think some things are more important than others, but you can't pick and choose. You can't, I can't pick and choose and say, I really like 
to think about the mercy of God and the love of God, but I don't really like to think about the wrath of God or the holiness of God or, or his, you know. But here, here's the thing for me. One of the things that, that I think about a lot is that if there's no hell, then that means in my mind that God is not a God of justice. If the person who abused that little girl doesn't ever uh, pay for that in some way, then, then how is God a just God? If there's no recompense for human evil and human sin, then how is God a just God? And, and so I, I don't really want to worship a God who, who got a, who's not a just God. And it's not just, you know, the most egregious sins like, like the pedophile or whatever. But then, so where do, you go, where do you go from there? From that pedophile to me, there's a series of very small gradations, you know. And at what point in time do you draw the line? And say that person doesn't deserve hell, and that person does. Or that person doesn't deserve God's punishment, and that person does. And so, you know, if God is just gonna gonna wave away injustice and sin and just pretend to look the other way and just not deal with it, then you know, I don't want I don't want to that that's not an adequate picture of a God that's worth even worshiping. So that's kind of one of the ways I approach it. So Ross, to the listener who is, who is maybe on the fence spiritually, I think that listener needs to hear this. Hell is real. And there's a way to know that you will not go there. I mean, you know, I started by talking about that heaven's gates, hell's flames, and those young men that came forward and they really weren't interested in Jesus. They just didn't want to go to hell. I think it would be really helpful for us to end this episode by talking to the person about what the Bible says then, if hell really is real and heaven really is real. So what does the Bible say about how to stay out of hell? Or more appropriately, what, what does the Bible say about how to, how to go to heaven? Yeah, and it's unfortunate that the, the big picture that people often think is, I just have to be a good person. And if the good outweighs the bad, then I'm in. But, you know, how do we measure that in our, for ourselves? Like, we think the good outweighs the bad, but maybe someone else has a different perspective on that. But that, that's a, a wrong approach anyway. Because every single one of us, if the good outweighs the bad, then I've got all these good things, but I also have all these sins. How am I going to answer for those things? And each one of them is a violation of God's character and of God's law. And so really, that's why the Bible says, if I, hey, if I sin once, I've broken the whole law. Because each one has that effect. And so really, so what, it was, what I'm saying is it's not about just become a better person. It's not about just try to figure out how to make the good outweigh the bad or how to keep improving or, or, or avoid the big ones, whatever. No, because really every, every sin counts. And so really what it's, a, what it's about is not my righteousness, but the Bible says it's about the righteousness of Jesus, that I, I, I should take a, a hit for my sin. I should take the punishment of God for my sin. It's just for, for that to happen. But Jesus said, look, no, I will stand in your place. I'll take the punishment for your sin from God on your behalf. And that's what Jesus did when he died on the cross. And so that, that penalty for my sin has been paid. When I'm humble myself, when, the, when I recognize how deeply I need that, how deeply I don't deserve it, and yet I call out to Jesus and he applies it to my life anyway by trusting in him, by faith in what he did, then, then that's the way that I have a right relationship with God. 
in, in this life and in eternity. If you want to learn more about that, we've got a series called The Pursuit. It's the flagship series at PursueGod.org. It explains all that. It explains who Jesus is. It explains what sin is. It explains God's heart toward us. And it explains, in Lesson 6 of that series, it explains how to respond to Jesus and how to become a Christian, how to, how to come to Him in faith and trust Him for salvation. So if you're listening to this and you and you don't know if you've ever done that before. You, you know, you you maybe you've even gone through this entire series on eschatology in the end times. You know, this last one, Ross, like you said, is personal eschatology. It's the big, it's the most important one because public or general eschatology, like what's going to happen in the big picture, like you said last week, that doesn't really at the end of the day affect me that much. Whatever my view is on that, I might even be wrong. My view might be wrong, but. But personal eschatology matters. Like what happens to you after you die is so important. And you don't have to wonder. You can know that that Christ has covered your sins and you can put your faith in Jesus and know that you're going to be with him in eternity. So again, if you want to learn more about that, you can check out our, our pursuit series, pursuegod.org forward slash go. And if you want to take this entire series, all five lessons on biblical eschatology, you can find that at pursuegod.org forward slash faith. Just scroll through there until you see the eschatology series. And I hope you've enjoyed this one. And then don't forget to continue to tune in to the Pursue God podcast because Ross and I are going to just continue to cover more and more topics like this to, to really help you to understand a biblical perspective on life and faith and everything in between. Hey listeners, this is Brian Dwyer reminding you to rate this show on your favorite podcast app. That really does help us when you do that. That way more people can discover this podcast and start listening. And also don't forget to share the podcast with a friend.